Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. If you look for news on Indigenous reconciliation in Canada, you'll find a lot of interesting stuff. A lot of talk about the legacy of colonialism. Environmental activist David Suzuki calling for a new approach to parks governance. Calls for Ryerson University to change its name to erase any connection to Egerton Ryerson because of his involvement with residential schools. And coverage of a bill in Parliament to implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP. Reconciliation is a big topic, one we will not exhaust in this episode, but it is a road we'll start upon. And we'll do it starting with the premise that reconciliation, the restoration of relationship, is necessary. For one, it's a simple recognition of the human dignity that we all bear, Indigenous or not. And it's also a step toward healing past injustices and moving toward a better Canada. Of course, this is The Long Way, a podcast where I try to do everything not in the typical way. So to discuss what Indigenous reconciliation can and should look like in Canada, I've invited Melissa Embarkey to join us. She's an Indigenous woman from Treaty 4 in Saskatchewan who grew up on a reserve and has spent her career working as an oil, gas and mining operations analyst. Melissa is also a policy analyst in the Indigenous Policy Program at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Melissa, it's great to have you on the long way. Thank you so much for that. I want to just ask you straight off the bat, when you think about Indigenous reconciliation, that concept, what comes to mind for you? What would those priorities be for you in a Canadian context? The very first thing that comes to mind, uh, especially when it comes to reconciliation, is having our First Nation leaders uh, being actively involved in provincial and federal legislation. We need to start removing the silos that we see. Um, This is not getting us anywhere. Um, It's actually preventing conversations from happening. And it doesn't really give us a whole lot of autonomy to choose what is best for us and our communities. So that's the first thing I would address. Um, The second thing that I would look at is um, some of the government structures that we have to work with and, and start asking the question, do these work for us or not? And if they're not working for us, how can we go about changing it so that we can get it to work for everyone and not just for one entity. This is reconciliation as a whole for me. We need to get those conversations happening. Okay, so when you say silos, let's deal with that one first. For someone like me, say, who doesn't have much knowledge or specialization in this sort of issue, what does that mean? What does that actually look like? That looks like the 600 plus reserves that we have in Canada in their own little pocket somewhere in the middle of nowhere that nobody addresses. That's one silo. Another silo is um, government organizations like Indigenous Services Canada that deal with these reserves, 
um, but they don't necessarily work with them. That's another silo. Another silo would be something like a like the Assembly of First Nations. They deal with only the chiefs or the elected chiefs in our communities. They don't deal with anybody else. Like they wouldn't deal with an individual person like me. So we need to start peeling away at this onion and start, I guess, investigating where where is this conversation, where are these conversations not happening and how can we better facilitate them between the reserves and the federal or even provincial governments? How do we get that happening? Okay. That clarifies things uh, a little bit in terms of just how things are working within communications between authorities, say, and, uh, and reserves. When you talk about government structures, though, what, what do you mean there? What is it that you'd like to see change? Well, first of all, our, our First Nations, like our elected leaders, they're not involved in any of the legislation that is being passed. They're not part of this decision-making that directly impacts reserves. So I don't know how that would look on a political level. Um, but we do need to get some of our elected leaders either on the provincial level, um, especially when it comes to passing legislations or even going to order and council. We need to get them involved in these conversations and decisions. Even on the federal level, you look at something that is going through um, you look at UNDRIP, Bill C-15, that's going through right now. Elected leaders didn't have a say in this bill. And the question is, why? Why weren't they consulted? Why weren't their concerns addressed? Why weren't they involved in this act? Um, it, that's just a small example of, of what our elected leaders have to face because they're not part of these discussions. That's interesting that you should mention Bill C-15, and, and it deals with the implementation of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which took a long time to uh, to come to, and now we've got this this bill that's before the House of Commons, um, sent a, a Commons Committee specifically at this point. Let's talk about that that bill a little bit and the and undrip as it's known that that declaration the consultation is 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 one thing what would its implementation change in canada is there something good that would come out of that or would it maybe be counterproductive at this stage and how it's written it's actually counterproductive um it's it's very it's poorly written there are no definitions in there. Um, it, they, it keeps referring to their land. I mean, everything is so vague. You, I just can't decipher something that and determine whether it applies to me or not. Um, and it doesn't leave accountability to anyone. So you have all of these initiatives in this act. At the end of the day, who's accountable for it? And is it just another nice promise? to Indigenous people to keep us at bay. It, it, like it's not, from my perspective and as it sits right now, it's just creating more red tape for First Nations reserves and our elective chief and council to go through. I mean, if I'm hearing you correctly, aside from the, from, you know, concerns about red tape and bureaucracy, it sounds like 
the implementation of UNDRIP is more symbolic than substantive. That's exactly true. And what it's because it's it's not clearly defined who is indigenous in this act. It, is it going to allow someone who's not from my community to speak for my community? If they're all of a sudden indigenous, does that allow them to come into my area and say what you're doing is wrong and we need to fix this? And it it just ca- it's going to cause if we don't address some of these issues right now, it's going to cause a lot of unrest um, because does it override our current democratic process and does it override the decisions of our of our leaders and we've seen it used poorly um there are examples where it hasn't been used in the right way and we've also seen it used in a good way where it actually benefited communities so i think we need to go back to the drawing board start defining certain things and we need to start making it more clear so that we know exactly what this represents and how it represents us. Can you suggest a couple ways, maybe a few ways that Bill C-15 could be made better? I think right now is it doesn't supersede anything in place. Like it doesn't supersede the Indian Act. It doesn't supersede anything in the in Section 35 of the Constitution Act. It needs to be clear on what is its objective is. Until we get to what the objective of this bill is, and we clearly state what it's intended for, it it just like I said, it's just going to cause chaos and. As a First Nations person myself, I know where, like, I know where I'm represented. Like, I'm considered a status Indian, and I really don't like using this term, but that's who I am. This bill doesn't, doesn't refer to that. So does it even represent me? Or does it represent, who does it represent? And I think that is the big question. This is the type of thing that we don't often hear about UNDRIP. Uh, legislation or or Bill uh, C-15 especially uh, or particularly, which is why I, I find it so interesting. Because when you, you know, speaking as someone who is not Indigenous, you know, child of immigrants in my particular case, these these issues are, are new to me. But at the same time, I've read enough, seen enough, heard enough to know that there needs to be some kind of... Um, renewal of a relationship between Canada and Indigenous peoples, that we need to have, you know, that there needs to be change. There are past injustices that need to be faced, confronted, admitted, uh, all of those sorts of things. And just based on what you've told me over the last 10 minutes or so, the some sort of the, the, the one of the big things that's in the front window in the display case as far as Indigenous reconciliation goes isn't going to really achieve any of those things and and may end up being counterproductive, which I would find very concerning. So if we were to be productive here now on this podcast, what is it that would really create reconciliation? What is it that would really bring um, a, a new relationship? And what is it that would just create that new spirit that I think so many Canadians realize 
needs to be there, but you know, we may have trouble articulating just how it should look. Well, first of all, I don't think reconciliation should be forced in an act. This is something that this is collaboration um, that we have to more or less do on our own. We have to start collaborating with provincial governments. We have to start collaborating with federal governments. We have to we have to start looking at the bigger picture. And I put the I put the responsibility on us as First Nations people to actually reach out and start this. Um, like I say, we we've been siloed for so long. We've been in our own little our own little space. We haven't really ventured out. Like we haven't really voiced what it is that we want. So we really have to go back to our drawing board and ask the bigger question. What is it that we want to achieve with reconciliation? How do we want to go about doing it? Is UNDRIP the answer? Is Bill C-15 the answer? And if these aren't, if this isn't the answer for us, then we have to start drafting something that will work for us. So reconciliation goes on, on, on both ends. Like we can't have, we can't have it pushed on us from the government side of things. And at the same time, we have to open those doors to these conversations in order to move in the right direction. Is local autonomy, uh, say at the reserve level, part of the solution? Yes. When I, I, I grew up on a reserve. Um, I know how the political system works. I've had family that have worked in this political system for years. So I'm well aware of how it functions. I'm well aware of how it um, how it plays out on a community level. And we tend to be siloed. Like we tend to just look at our issues within our boundaries. Um, the only time we look outside is if something is directly impacting our community. But we should be involved in these conversations all the time. We should be working with our counties, our municipalities. Like these are our allies. These are our neighbors. And we need to start, we need to start figuring out how we can work best with our neighbors. And that's not a discussion that's happening. So we need to get this discussion going. What difference would it make, say, if if you were able to have those kinds of conversations, those connections and uh, and that autonomy. And I'll tell you why I'm asking, because when I, you know, just filtering through what you get in the media, the, the, the problems that I see and that I become aware of are things like water quality, specifically lack of water quality, which, I mean, I, I'd be hard-pressed to find a Canadian who didn't say that that should be a given in Canada, regardless of where you live. Um, you you talk about, uh, you know, policing problems, mental health issues, resource development issues, economic development, all those sorts of things. What are the differences that you could see happening in those areas? Speaking just from your own background, what is it that you would aspire to? I come from a small community in Saskatchewan. Uh, so our neighboring town is, it, it's, it's pretty much dying out. Like there's probably, I'm going to guess, 40 people that live in this small town that's ad adjacent to my reserve. If this town is dying out, um, there's empty lots, there's a water system in place, 
there's electrical lines, there's gas lines, they have the infrastructure to bring in people. I would, I would go and buy up some of these lots. Like this might fix some of the issues that's going on in your community. It might, it might alleviate the housing issue. It might alleviate the water issue. It might alleviate the overcrowding issue. Like it's, it, it, opening these discussions would bring solutions like this. And this is something that we're not really talking about. Um, but you look at mental health problems and, and policing issues and any, every kind of social issue that our communities, communities are facing, we can start banding together with other reserves and saying, okay, there's five of us. What can we do as a team to bring in a treatment center? What, we, what can we do to bring in uh, counseling services? Like how can we get these services that we need? Um, and, this is, and I go back to being siloed. We, we cannot, if we're gonna stay in our individual pods, and not look at solutions. We're never gonna. We're never gonna address these issues. We're gonna stay as is for decades to come. Like these were issues when I was younger. These were issues that were prevalent in in my parents' decades and and my grandparents. Like we're still dealing two generations, three generations later with the exact same issues. The solutions and the issues that you name are very. They're very practical. And they're on the ground, uh, and in some ways they're quite local. Often, what we will see in in Canada is the big, grand declaration uh, or gesture of some sort. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that gestures or symbols are unimportant, but you know, you hear about things like having an indigenous governor general or seats in the Senate reserved for indigenous people or including more indigenous history in, in, you know, school curricula, how high a priority do you place on, on actions of, of that sort vis-a-vis, you know, the things on a more local scale? I, I honestly think if we get some of our elected leaders in parliament, um, either as a Senator, governor general, they're going to bring a different view on these issues. They're, they're the grassroots out there. Like they're the ones that see these issues firsthand. They're the ones that are dealing with these issues firsthand and they will bring a different perspective to decisions. And, and we need more of this. Like prior to today, um, you wouldn't have even known I existed. Um, coming from the natural resource sector that's very uncommon for an indigenous person to be in being a woman in this sector is also uncommon so we need to start we we need to start having some of our members more more present in government and however that looks whether there's some senator seats that can be filled whether we can leave a couple of seats on as as an independent specifically for our leaders but we need to we need to somehow get our voices out there and heard and we need to start seeing different perspectives because we know what we need on a very i'm gonna say 
baseline level, we, we know exactly what we need as a community. We have the answers to what we need. It's just nobody's listening. And, and some visibility on a, on a national level might help. Yes, it would definitely help. I mean, you see political parties that are bringing issues from their constituents um, to light. I mean, issues that I probably wouldn't have even known existed are, are brought to light. And we need to have more Indigenous voices out there that bring issues like water, mental health, housing, that bring these to light to the general public. Like, we know it's out there, but just how bad is it, we don't necessarily see in the media. I know that you have some expertise in resource development. So just as we kind of reach the end of our conversation, I'm wondering if you can just enlighten me on what role resource development will play in, or should play perhaps, in you know, economic development for Indigenous peoples in Canada? How important is it? And what are sort of the log jams that, that prevent it from happening? Some of the, I'll just go through some of the items that I see happening right now. Um, there are definitely initiatives that need, that we need to see more of from operators. I, one of the, one of the biggest ones that I've seen was the Synovus Energy Housing Initiative. Um, they determined that in Northern Alberta communities, there was a lack of housing. So they invested $50 million to build new homes for these First Nations communities. Um, I would like to see more of this in other, with other operators that are running through First Nations areas. Um, the line Enbridge Line 3 replacement ran through my community. Um, they extended employment to everyone, not just our community, but our surrounding communities. They paid for training programs. We've seen an increase of people getting into the trades. We've seen them getting into careers like heavy equipment operators, drivers, camp services, cleaners. Like they, they brought employment to my area that didn't exist before. And what they also did was they... Um, they funded certain community programs so that we could have training and education um, for years to come. They invested in scholarships. Um, they provided our community in the short time that they were there with years of training that we wouldn't have normally had. Um, it gave our it gave our it gave people from our community the opportunity to learn and to be able to transfer those skills to other areas of work. We need to see a lot of this, a lot more of this. You know, I, I know I said that our conversation was ending, but I, I did want to ask you about one more thing. Just as you were speaking, it came to mind and describing all of these things that that are happening or that have happened. You know, one of the things that Cardis has looked at is the resource sector and the um, the benefit that that has come through those jobs and in, in other research that we've done, not just the good of work in terms of having an income, which is obviously very important, but all of the other good that comes from being employed and getting training and, and all those sorts of things, you know, deriving meaning and it helps in your relationships it helps health wise like there's all kinds of benefits to work that go well beyond a paycheck 
so when 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 you describe what you're describing, I'm seeing exactly what Cardis has studied kind of work itself out in very practical ways. So the question arises in my mind, when we set new impediments in the way of resource development, I'd really love your perspective on this. Do you see perhaps a threat to some of the, the benefits that you've just described? I've, I've seen it. Um, we, we've seen it um, when we've seen the oil and gas industry um, lose jobs. Um, we've seen small businesses close down. We've had uh, drivers open their small companies. They're closed down because there's no longer work for them. So it had a direct impact to our communities where we might have had, let's say, 20, 30 percent of our people working is now down to 10 percent. So it impacted our unemployment rates like it did on the national level. So we see it on a small scale. you know, in terms of like, we're looking at hundreds of people compared to the national level where there's thousands of jobs that were lost. So anything that happens in the oil and gas sector directly impacts us. And we don't see that until we start to see um, families file for bankruptcy or families close down their business or families selling their trucks. And it's really sad to see because we were just starting to get there. Like we were starting to address poverty. We were starting to become self-sufficient. And it's very, very heart-wrenching to see what is going on within the reserves and also on a national level. All right, Melissa Mbarki, there is obviously much more uh, to discuss. and uh, But I do thank you for, you know, what you've shared with us and... I I just found it a very enlightening conversation. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And if you want me to come back, I'm more than happy to come back and discuss other things that you might have noticed in this um, in this podcast. Well, that that's great. Thanks very much. We may well have a part two. So thank you again. I appreciate it. <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, but that was an educational conversation for me. I mean. Growing up in suburban Toronto, you don't often think about the issues that Melissa raised, and her point of view is one that I haven't often heard in the media. It's a much stronger emphasis on development and self-sufficiency, less on symbolism and grand declarations, you know, virtue signaling in other words. And not to put too fine a point on it, but Melissa outlined in very human terms what happens to families and communities, including many Indigenous ones, when natural resource development falters, or, I might add, falls victim to environmental rules that don't take into account the people and places that are affected. There's good research on that, by the way, called Fueling the Middle Class. Look for links in the show notes. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Long Way. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and comment on The Long Way wherever you're listening to this podcast, and rate this podcast, too, that will help more people find The Long Way. So for the entire team at Think Tank Cardis and at The Long Way, I'm Daniel Prusilidis. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.